Well, as we turn to God's word once more this morning, please join me in prayer. Our Father, we do ask that you would meet with us this morning, that you would speak to us through your word. Father, we ask that you would strengthen me now as I preach your word, that you would enable me to teach and to preach faithfully. And we ask that your spirit would then work powerfully in the lives and hearts of each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Life provides for us defining moments, significant events, experiences, and accomplishments which give shape to our lives. What have been some of these moments for you? Maybe it was getting your license or getting your diploma. Maybe it was getting a car. Maybe it was getting a job. Maybe it was getting married or having a child. Or maybe it was something that was taken from you, that was precious to you and you can't get back. Maybe it was losing a spouse or a child and mourning the loss of a loved one that is no longer with you. Life's defining moments, they can be joyful. They could also be sorrowful. They can come expectantly as well as unexpectedly. In each case, these moments are not easily forgotten. They give shape and definition to our lives. In our sermon passage this morning, we read of a moment that defines Isaiah's life and ministry. This moment is captured in vivid language that captures you and I, that brings us into the moment as we read it. It's as though we too become eyewitnesses to what Isaiah sees, and we too are extended an invitation to be shaped by what Isaiah sees. We'll be looking this morning at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and turn there now and follow along as I read in a moment. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 571. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, we would invite you to go ahead and take that home as a gift from us so that you can read God's Word on your own. Well, reading now from Isaiah 6, 1 to 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, 
having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The main idea I have for us from this sermon this morning is this. God's holiness condemns and cleanses sinners. God's holiness condemns and cleanses sinners. In this passage, Isaiah sees the holiness of God. And as the reader, we see the effects of God's holiness. In this one defining moment, we see two effects of God's holiness. So for those who are taking notes, this will serve as our outline. Two effects of God's holiness. Effect number one in verses one to five. God's holiness condemns sinners. God's holiness condemns sinners. Now, if you've been with us during our sermon series in Isaiah, you know that the book is full of judgment. Last week, Pastor Jonathan preached to us from Isaiah 5, which records six woes, six words of judgment for Israel. Listen in again to the judgment spoken of in chapter 5, verse 26. It says, he, speaking of God, will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily, they come. This was a prophecy of Israel's future captivity where nations far off Babylon and Assyria would come and overtake Israel and Judah and carry them into exile. This was the context for Isaiah's ministry. And the content of his message was words of judgment against Israel for her idolatry and unfaithfulness to God. Here in chapter 6, we read of the death of a king, which is in and of itself a judgment. Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah's death does provide us a timestamp in history around 740 B.C. He had a lengthy reign, which was largely marked by peace and prosperity. However, he had an untimely death, which would signal a change in Israel's fortune. His death came after he contracted leprosy for improperly assuming the role of a priest in the temple. His actions were a blatant disregard for God's holiness. Uzziah's death served as a warning and reminder to Isaiah and to Israel that God demands and deserves obedience from his people, and God's holiness condemns sinners. It's in this year that Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, we read of warning against looking upon the Lord, and this is because the Lord's glory is so piercing and pure that our dim, impure, imperfect eyes cannot look upon him. But we do see places where God gives glimpses of his glory to man. We think of Moses who saw the back of God while in a thick cloud, or Jacob who wrestled with God in the night. You'll notice in this vision we're not given a detailed description of the Lord's appearance. We could infer that while Isaiah did see the Lord, he did not actually look upon the face of God. There's no specific mention that he did. But either way, 
God preserved his life, and there's no mistaking that God is present. God's presence is the emphasis that we see in this vision. Isaiah goes on to note the Lord's position. Isaiah sees him sitting upon a throne, this communicating the Lord's authority, his accomplishment that he sits enthroned, that he is the king who rules and reigns. This king is high and lifted up. This conveys his status and his stature, his grandeur. High and lifted up is the appropriate placement for the eternal king. Isaiah's vision does provide a stark contrast between King Uzziah and the Lord, King Jesus. When one king dies, another king lives on. At the time of this vision, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up on a throne. Later, Jesus would be high and lifted up on a cross. You see, Jesus did die once, but he rose from the dead, never to die again. Isaiah's vision of the Lord enthroned in Isaiah 6 is as much a reality then as it is now. Jesus sits on the throne today. Jesus sits on the throne forever. And one day he's returning to gather all his people and bring us to the throne room of heaven that we might be with him for all of eternity. Praise God. At the end of this verse, we see that God's presence extends from this heavenly throne down to the earthly temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. This is a picture of the heavenly throne reaching down to the earthly temple. The perfect king of heaven, now present with sinful man. The Lord met with Isaiah on that day, and it changed his life. Well, I wonder, what is the significance of Jesus sitting on the throne to your life? For each one of us, We are to be worshipers of the Lord. We are to worship Jesus, the King. Well, true worshipers are those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. While the Lord has made us, God has made us to be worshipers of Him, the the Scriptures tell us that each one of us have rejected His rule, that we have rebelled against this King. And as such, we stand condemned before a holy God. But God, in his love, sent his son Jesus to die in the place of sinners so that sinners who otherwise stand condemned would be seen as clean and righteous before a holy God. You can be a true worshiper if you repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not done that this morning, I would encourage you, I would implore you to do that today, to do that now, to to speak to someone who, who brought you, who is next to you. You are surrounded by a number of true worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Well, worship is what we see the seraphim doing in verses two and three. So above the Lord stood the seraphim, it says in verse two. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, seraphim is translated burning ones. These are fiery 
angelic created beings. There's something supernatural and awe-inspiring about them. But there's something even more supernatural and awe-inspiring than them. Something more glorious. Something even the spectacular seraphim cannot bear to look upon or be exposed to. These seraphim each had six wings, and four of them they used to cover themselves. Twice the text tells us that they covered themselves. The first mention, with two wings they covered their face because they cannot safely look directly at the glory of God. God's glory is too bright, too pure, too dangerous to view unfiltered or unobstructed. The second mention of covering, they use two wings to cover their feet because they cannot safely expose themselves to God in His glory. Even these supernatural beings, the seraphim, could not casually approach a holy God. I think there probably are some lessons for you and I here. Lessons in, in worship from the seraphim. Because like them, we too are created creatures. We are created to worship a holy God. So like them, may we humbly trust in the Lord and what He reveals to us. One thing that stood out to me this week is the idea of wing covering their faces and not having a completely unfiltered or unobstructed view of the Lord. And yet their faith and their praise was undiminished, was unhindered. May we as well humbly trust in the Lord and what He chooses to reveal to us. And may we humbly revere Him when He does draw near to us. The seraphim being in the presence of the king results in them giving praise and calling out. This is what they say, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So rather than saying of themselves, wow, look at us, they can't help but say, wow, look at God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Lord of hosts. He is absolute in his holiness. He alone is entirely pure. He is in a separate category altogether from others in his moral perfection. The repetition of the word holy, this reinforces the comprehensiveness of his purity. And the expression, the Lord of hosts, the completeness of his power. It's with this declaration that the seraphim provide for you and I a template of praise. Three times they declare, holy, holy, holy. So let's join the chorus. Let us join in the chorus as we have gathered this morning to together look to God, let us join in the chorus to our holy God. Let us speak of Him. Let us sing to Him. Let us be mesmerized by His glory in our gathering this morning as well as when we go from here later on. This is a majestic scene. The whole earth full of God's glory, His goodness, His beauty, and His power. 
And this is a scene that is true now in part. The scene is already the case as we listen to the psalmist who tells us that creation itself declares the glory of God. And at the same time, this scene is not yet fully the case. Not yet has every creature bowed down to God as king. That day will come. And friends, members of Oakhurst Baptist Church, we get to rehearse for that day in praise and in worship. As a church, our mission is not to be transformationalists, to completely renew the culture, but rather to be evangelists, those who are holding out the truth of the gospel to lost and lost sinners. We do this as we, we gather and as we seek to display God's glory to one another, but also to our neighbors and to the watching world. Oakhurst Baptist Church, may we increasingly be an accurate portrayal, an accurate preview to the world of what is to come when in fullness the whole earth will be full of the Lord's glory. Well, this is not only a majestic scene, but it's also a terrifying scene. Verse 4, we read, The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The mere mention of God's presence and glories, it shakes the foundation. The, the manifestation of God's presence and, and glory, it is seen in the smoke that filled the temple. Such vivid imagery of God's power shaking and his presence, the smoke. I wonder how you and I in our personal worship, in our day-to-day -day living, might leverage this imagery and other imagery that helps us to worship God. Hear me out for a moment. I'm not advocating that we shake the rafters of this roof or that we strike the, the smoke machine in our corporate worship. Rather, as we live day to day and moment to moment, encounter shaking or smoke. How might that be a tangible and a, a vivid reminder of God's presence and power with us? You could probably continue to populate this, and there are other images you could use, but just to use the images there, shake and, and smoke. Driving on the highway in a large truck drives by and you feel the shake as it goes by. In what way can that be a reminder of the power of God who shakes the foundations of the earth? I don't know how many of you, this is your experience where you are cooking in a smoky kitchen. That was mine this past week, and it's not the first time. Rather than frustration, I need to learn, right, from my mistakes, but frustration over a, a smoky kitchen. In what ways can the smoke be that, that visible reminder of just like smoke that fills the kitchen and fills the house? So the Lord's presence fills his people and fills this place. God's presence is everywhere. You can, you can tease that out a little bit further, but I think when we read 
a genre like this where, where there's imagery and, and poetry? In what ways can that aid us in our personal worship of the Lord? Well, this vision, it does shake Isaiah to the core. Verse 5, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. This is the first time in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah speaks. And what does he say? He speaks words of confession. Friends, that's a, a safe place to start in our communication, in our communion with God. Isaiah, in this vision of the Lord, was undone, as I mentioned. There was no mistaking his sinfulness. Seeing the, the holiness of God, it did not cause confusion in Isaiah's heart and mind, but rather brought clarity. God's holiness was convincing, and it was convicting. We live in a time where, for some, it's become vogue to question their Christian faith. Well, for Isaiah, when he looked upon the Lord, it crystallized his faith. Let that be an encouragement for you and I as we wrestle with questions or doubts that we seek to find answers by looking to the Lord. When he did so, Isaiah clearly saw that he was a man of unclean lips. This was a figure of speech of, of Isaiah's life, and it also was a representation of the nation of Israel as a whole. He goes on to say, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, this is not Isaiah pointing the fingers as, at others as though diverting attention from his sinfulness. No, Isaiah is still pointing the finger at himself. Isaiah counts himself among the unclean. Well, I wonder how candidly you and I are about our sin with others. One helpful image in thinking about the local church is that as a hospital for sinners. Every single member of this church is a sinner. And so we gather together and we confess our sin. We are reminded of the Lord's grace in the gospel. To what extent do you speak about sin as you meet with others? How effectively do you seek to address sin? Isaiah, when confronted with his sin, he did not hide it. He calls sin what it is. So when you and I seek to treat the sickness of sin in our own hearts, in the hearts of others, where is it that we turn? Well, we are to turn to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other gospel. So continuing this, this metaphor of the church as a hospital for sinners, let us together turn to Jesus who is the great physician who heals our sick souls. Isaiah continues, he says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We've mentioned briefly that Isaiah says earlier, I saw the Lord. I think in context here, Isaiah is commenting on seeing the Lord as King. 
he is now seeing the one true king. Having lived under the reign of King Uzziah, he now sees the lasting king, the eternal king, the real king. Israel has had many kings, but now we see the ultimate king. Seeing the true king helps Isaiah see and understand his true self, his true condition, his true identity. And I think it's always true that establishing and maintaining a proper identity, a proper self-understanding, it always begins with a proper view of God. I'll say it again. Establishing and maintaining a a proper identity and self-understanding always begins with a proper view of God. This is because identity is not something that is self-constructed, but it is God-given. God makes us in His image, the Scriptures tell us. And so we are to reflect His glory. And as new creatures in Christ, we are increasingly to conform to the image of Christ. It is in Christ where we are to find identity. An assignment for you. Who might you have a conversation with, whether today, over lunch, or sometime this week, to think together about identity in Christ? What aspect of being in Christ do you most find your identity in? Well, one of those things we're thinking about is being cleansed in Christ. And that's our second effect that we see, second effect of holiness in verses 6 and 7. We see God's holiness, it cleanses sinners. God's holiness cleanses sinners. As we've mentioned, Isaiah here at this point in the, in the scene, in the vision, he's been broken down and undone. But God does not leave him there. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Another image, tongs. Maybe just even being reminded of the Lord's atonement. Been in the kitchen this week, over the holidays. But notice the initiative of God. The seraphim flew to me. And it is always the initiative of God that that saves and that sanctifies, that purifies his people. The first act of our salvation and of our conforming to Christ always comes from outside of ourselves. In this case, I'm I'm not really sure that Isaiah could actually do much else. I'm not sure he he could move, given what he was seeing. But God moves. God sends one of the seraphim with a burning coal. With a burning coal. Well, this might actually immobilize and and paralyze Isaiah even more, all the more unable to move. This fiery creature is flying towards him with a flaming coal. And not only does he fly towards him, but he actually touches him. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In this one shining moment, Isaiah's life takes a whole new direction. Instead of being ruined, he's rescued. 
you'll see that the coal was taken from the altar, taken from the place where blood sacrifices in the temple were offered for the covering and for the purification of sin. And this flaming coal, rather than harm him, actually heals him of his greatest affliction. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Because of the purifying blood of Christ, the Christian no longer stands condemned before a holy God, but actually cleansed in the presence of a holy God. This is what happened with Isaiah. Rather than being condemned, he's now made clean. The very things that he will identify in a moment as making him unclean are the very things that God makes a point to touch with the burning coal and to cleanse. So, friend, as we think about the lens of the gospel and this story, just as God sent the seraphim as a symbol of purification for sins, so God sent his son to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. The blood sacrifice of Christ offered on the altar of the cross, it purifies the most wretched of repentant sinners. It purifies the most wretched of repentant sinners. Let me just pause for a moment. Do you believe this? Do you believe that your sin, however great, can be forgiven? Or do you believe that your sin is too great? Do you believe that your uncleanness uncleanness is too great and beyond purification? Well, pause again for a moment and answer in the quiet of your own mind, but what is it that makes you unclean? What is that thing, or maybe it's a few things, as you think, this, this makes me unclean? Consider that. For Isaiah, it was his lips, his unclean lips. And yet, again, that is the very thing that the burning coal touches to make him clean. So the very instruments that the lips that were made for worship and that in in Isaiah's life had uttered false worship, they're now redeemed for a proper worship of God. It's true with every part of our body. Our bodies have been purchased and are intended to be used for worship. Our bodies have been purchased and intended to be used for worship. So that very part of your body in which you have made yourself unclean, in which you have sinned before a holy God, that is the very thing that the Lord makes clean. Now, we don't have to kind of dissect. In this case, it was Isaiah's lips. So could it be this part of my body or of my mind? No, rather we understand that all of who we are belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of who we are belongs to him and that we are a people of his possession. Praise God. 
Okay, well, we've kind of done that mental exercise and you're still struggling a little bit with this sense of being unclean. Unclean is, is more than a word you used to describe how you feel, but actually is a descriptor of who you understand yourself to be at the core. Unclean, dirty, contaminated. I think what you're experiencing there is, is shame before a holy God, your uncleanness before a pure God. Well, friends, Christ comes near to our sin and our uncleanness. Christ comes near to our sin and our uncleanness. We see this time and time again in the scriptures. Just a, a few brief mentions. In Matthew 8, Jesus, he touches the leper. And rather than becoming contaminated himself, the leper is healed and made clean. You think of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. And yet he had a personal conversation with her. He interacted with her, even though she was known to be an unclean woman. You think of Jesus' brush-up with the woman in the crowd who was bleeding. And he makes a point to pause and ask, who is it that touched me? He is seeking to bring glory to his powerful work of redemption and of cleansing. One more example we see in the scriptures. Think of the story of, of Peter. You're familiar with, with Peter leading to the crucifixion of Christ. And three times Peter denies the Lord Jesus. After Christ's death and then resurrection, Christ makes a point to meet with Peter. And this encounter is to provide restoration and, and healing. Three times, Peter's three denial, and then three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And three times Jesus commands Peter, then feed my sheep. This was a restoring work of Jesus. This was Christ not breaking man down for his failures, but building him up in the perfection of Christ. So friends, what is it that makes you unclean? Christ has come not to put you to shame, but to wipe away your shame. So like Peter and, and the others that we briefly just considered, and like Isaiah, we might be able to live lives that bring much glory to God. This was a life-defining moment for Isaiah. It altered the direction of his life. Its lasting impact, it's reflected in how he chose to live his life going forward. He was then commissioned to be a messenger of God's word to God's people. We see clearly in the remaining chapters of the book of Isaiah how Isaiah was impacted by this encounter with God, this vision. Well, in the remaining chapters of our lives, how might we be impacted by our relationship with God? 
having personally and powerfully encountered the Lord, where do we go from here? Well, we continue to confess as Isaiah modeled for us, and we give praise to our holy God. We demonstrate this routine of repentance and faith, this posture of the Christian life of daily repentance and faith. And then just as we have done this morning, we continue to behold our God. And we go from here continuing to behold our God because our God is seated on the throne. So come, let us adore him. Behold our king to whom nothing can compare. Come, come, let us adore him. Let's pray together. Our God, we praise you as the one who is the true king and the one who sits enthroned. Father, we confess our sin before you, a holy God, and we, through repentance and faith, rest in the righteousness of Christ before your holy judgment. Father, would we esteem you now, even in these next few moments as we sing, And each moment that you give us in this coming week, until we return here again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.